Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. I have a very special guest this week. If I listed all the credentials, it would take the entire podcast to list them all. But let me just give it a shot. He's received his law degree from Harvard Law. He's taught gambling law at Whittier Law School and abroad at the University of Macau. He is sought as an expert witness in administrative, civil, and criminal cases throughout the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. He's acted as a consultant to major law firms, international corporations, casinos, Indian tribes, state governments such as Arizona, California, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Michigan, Jersey, and Texas, and also federal governments, Canada, Mexico, and the United States. He's the worldwide leading expert on gambling and the law. Please welcome Professor I. Nelson Rose. Professor, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for inviting me. So, Professor, I'd like to start off with just uh, how you got into law and everything. So, how was life growing up? Well, I actually have to say I resisted getting into law for quite a while because my father, mother, and sister are all lawyers. And uh, so I thought, um, no, I thought I would. Actually, I thought I'd probably go into politics because I was working on political campaigns. And law is just an easier way to get into politics. That was kind of my theory. So um, I applied and got into Harvard Law School and found I really like it. I mean, I... I, I, I just loved law school. Uh, I think the law is, it's really fun. It's like a super complicated game for, and in fact, your listeners would appreciate it. You know, you need to know the rules of the game and you need to know if there's higher rules that would, and then are there higher rules than that, you know? And so, um, I, I really took to it. I did actually practice. Uh, for three and a half years in Hawaii. I, when I went to Harvard in Massachusetts, that was the first time in my life I had ever seen it snow because I was born and raised in, in California. Uh, I wore thermal underwear to class. You know, I mean, it was, it was cold and snowy and it was like I wanted to defrost. I drew a line across the United States and said, it snows above this line. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, well, there's the South, which is, politics are not mine. Um, Texas isn't all that nice. Houston is, when there are people, is real smoggy. Uh, Mexico and Arizona are too dry. I've been in Cal- California, so it was like, oh, Hawaii sounds good. So, uh, I practiced with one of the state's largest litigation firms. I actually went to court all the time. I had criminal cases and civil cases. But Hawaii is really small, you know, and it is. That that time zone difference and the uh, geographic distance really does make a difference. But more importantly, I decided, hey, I don't like litigation. I, I don't like getting up in the morning and find 10 nasty letters and phone calls, and then I had to be nasty back. 
And I'm not a nasty person, so <laughs> it was. I'm, I was good at it. I was really, you know, a, a good litigator because you need to be like an actor, you know, and a public speaker. But uh, it was it, it, when I had a case of a premature baby, and the question was, we were. I was representing the hospital, and they wanted to pull the life support. And it was like, okay, uh, you know, you go out drinking after a case like that. And uh, I, I didn't want to become an alcoholic. So it was like, all right, I'm going to try to get into teaching. So uh, the interesting thing about for me about teaching was not only did I really enjoy it, or as my wife says, they have to laugh at your jokes because you're giving them grades. And I go, no, no, it's anonymous grades. They, they don't have to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> but but they, um, you have to write. And I've always liked writing. I, I was even writing uh, when I was in law school. I wrote about the collection of gambling deaths. And uh, they want you to write. You know, it's publish or perish. And I realized Still, nobody is writing seriously about gambling law. Harvard required a paper, a third-year paper of publishable quality, and New Jersey had just legalized. This was, you know, the end of the 1970s, and legal gambling was the fastest-growing industry in the world, in part because it started from a base of zero. Everything was outlawed, right? And so... Uh, I did a lot of research and discovered that legal gambling had twice before spread across the whole United States and then been been outlawed. And the state lotteries started bringing it back in the 1960s. So, uh, in fact, you can even go back to Nevada. Nevada outlawed its casinos in 1909 then brought them back in 1931 during the Depression. Whenever you have an economic crisis like today, the uh, lawmakers see legal gambling as a painless tax or a voluntary tax. So when all gambling was outlawed during the Prohibition era, it all started coming back in the Great Depression. That's when, 1931, that's when Nevada re-legalized its casinos. Racetracks started opening up. Um, and then the state lottery was rediscovered. It had been outlawed in the 1890s. The state lottery was rediscovered in the 1960s. And so I wrote an article, Legalization of Casino Gambling, it was published in the Fordham Urban Law Journal, and I said, we're about to enter the third wave of legal gambling. This will be the third time in American history that gambling will spread everywhere. Now, I couldn't predict, you know, Indian gambling or Internet, um, but I was kind of right on the money saying, yeah, here's what's going to happen. And instead of taking uh, their neighbor state's money, the disposable income, they have to go to the next level and eventually will have casinos. Um, and in fact, eventually we'll have sports betting. That was 
really the only um, the only major form of gambling that hadn't spread because there were federal prohibitions. So um, yeah, so I I was practicing on Hawaii, got a job teaching at uh, as a professor at Whittier Law School, and started writing serious articles about legal gambling, and then started getting calls from casinos and big bettors, investors, governments that wanted to know, what do we do? Um, you know, like the very one of the very first opinions, the Bell Gardens Bicycle Club, the, you know, at the time, the largest card club in the world, and the radio wouldn't take their commercials, their advertisements, and it was, they were basing it on a prohibition against advertising lotteries on the radio. So I gave them a legal opinion that poker is not a lottery. And the lawyers for the radio station said, gee, we agree with Professor Rose, take their money and run run the commercials. You know, so uh, it kind of, it, it took off from there. And then it, it started becoming international. So I still teach every summer, have for the last 14 years. Uh, I teach gaming law at the University of Macau. And Macau, the size of Washington, D.C., and it makes more money than all the casinos in the United States combined. So it's, you know, it's all international. And then I started writing, looking into and writing about Internet gambling. Uh, I co-authored a book, well, two editions, in fact, Internet Gambling Law. Um, oh, I wrote my first book, Gambling and the Law, and advising, you know, big bettors, people who wanted to get into the business, uh, taking bets, supplying, uh, giving the supplies to legal gambling. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been quite, quite a trip. This is an incredible story, Professor. I, you know, this all started from your third year at law school, you said, where you just had to write a, a publishing quality paper. What geared you towards gambling? Like, what was the thing? Because this is, it's like a butterfly effect. This changed your entire life for you to, you know, write about gambling law. Were you a gambler yourself? What, you know, how did that seed get set? Well, the, the, the way it actually started was, Yes, sure. I was a gambler. I mean, when I was in college, I used to spend hours a day um, practicing county cards uh, for blackjack. The problem is, you know, I wasn't part of a team, and if you make one mistake every half hour, you, you cut your, you know, your advantage. So I never was really that good. I ended up working with people like uh, Ken Houston and a lot of other uh, top blackjack players. Uh, I don't have a poker face. I, I can't even win at the, you know, the $2, $4 tables in uh, Gardena or Las Vegas. I'm good on the Internet because then they can't see my lack of a, my lack of a poker face. <laughs> but yeah. um, uh, actually, my favorite game was craps. And the problem is, of course, there is no way to get an advantage on that. And it's so fast. Um, 
there are some forms of gambling you can win. Blackjack, sports betting, the stock market. Um, but you've got to put an enormous amount of time and you have to be real disciplined. You, if there's no overlay, you don't make a bet. Um, the reason I got into it, I mean, I was interested in it, but it was actually during college, I was a uh, social psychology major, and, and it struck me that this we were the first generation that didn't have to worry about food, clothing, and shelter, so we had leisure time. And so I was really interested in what do people do when they don't have to worry about food, clothing, and shelter in an, you know, an industrialized nation. And so I was interested in television, um, the amusement parks, and, of course, and other forms of gambling um, and all, all gaming. Um, but it, once I started studying gambling, it swallowed up my life in terms of I just don't have time to look at all those other forms of, you know, what you call amusement, entertainment. By the way, the other thing I was interested in is we used to call it victimless crimes, right? Like uh, prostitution and illegal gambling. Now, because so many times they're legal, I call it morally suspect industry. And it, they have special rules. Like the legal brothels in Nevada are the only legal industry in the United States that cannot advertise. And that has been upheld by the federal courts. There are restrictions on legal gambling advertising, but no absolute prohibition. But even the restrictions that uh, today, the California State Lottery cannot advertise over television or radio in Nevada because we don't want the good people of Nevada hearing about California's evil legal gambling. Um, you can only advertise a state lottery in a state that has a state lottery. Nevada doesn't have a state lottery. So, you know, so there's these weird laws, um, you know, like I said, morally suspect industries. Um, I, so I started trying to put a book together on that, I even got what is an unbelievable book. It's called The Law of Slavery from 1845. If you think about it, slavery is the most morally suspect industry. Um, and so I want legal prostitution, um, the amazingly quick decriminalization of marijuana. You know, it, it took... It took more than 40 years to go from no state lotteries to today where all states except a half have state lotteries. But the first decriminalization and now, frankly, de facto um, legalization of marijuana was much faster um, the gay rights, gay marriage was much faster. What I liked about watching, studying gambling was 
I could actually see how the laws was changing because society was changing. That gambling, you remember, this wave, there, there were no state lotteries in the 1950s. None. They'd all been completely outlawed. The lotteries alone are bigger than uh, the movie industry. And the it, it's so we we had society learning to accept gambling as a part of life again, and the law then had to change because otherwise the money was all flowing out of one state into another or overseas. And if you never, as a lawyer or a professor of law, you know, legal scholar, get to see how laws change to meet society. Um, so it was fascinating for me. I, I wish I had the time um, to study the other, you know, uh, marijuana, other recreational drugs, um, legal prostitution, which is changing in other countries a lot. Um, you know, these are these are pretty big issues. Wow, fascinating stuff, Professor. Fascinating. So, as you're developing this this expertise for gambling law, um, in, in your experience, uh, you know, as you're becoming this this an expert on the subject, how little or 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 how much uh, does the public and other uh, you know quote unquote legal scholars know about gambling law? Like, uh, did you notice? Oh. What did you notice? Yeah, what a, a great question, because even today, most lawyers really don't have a clue. The public, even today, has very little knowledge, except for uh, those who read my column, gamblinginthelaw.com, um, which is now just a rarely written blog. Um, I do, by the way, have a lot of information on my website, gamblinginthelaw.com. Even today, most lawyers aren't going to know enough about this field, gaming law, to help their clients because it's a specialty. It's like if I were involved in a big real estate transaction, I would go to a real estate lawyer. I wouldn't try to do it myself. And gaming law is a real specialty. I would say, you know, as much as half of my clients are actually lawyers and law firms who are representing other people, and they brought me in to to help. Um, so um, even today, there are really only two organizations. There's the International Association of Gaming Advisors, which used to be called Gaming Attorneys, IAGA, and the um, there's the International Masters of Gaming Law, uh, which are lawyers who really specialize in representing casinos. And there are, you know, there's lawyers who work on state lotteries. There's lawyers who work with racetracks, uh, Indian gaming. It's still a, a relatively small specialty even though the dollar volume of the industry is so big. Like all of 
before the the coronavirus hit last year, all of the movie theaters in the United States took in less than $13 billion. Well, the state lotteries alone take in two, three, four, five times that amount. And if you look at the dollar volume of, you know, like how much money is bet, it's over a trillion dollars. Even television doesn't come close that we're on in the range of $50 billion a year that the industry makes where all of the entertainment, that makes it bigger than all other parts of the enter, entertainment industry combined. And so it's a, it's a fun specialty to be in, and it's nice to be dealing with clients who can actually pay, you know, like problem gamblers. You know, I incorporated the California Council on Problem Gambling, but the most of my cases are people who have an idea or another form of gambling and they need a legal opinion or, you know, investors who want to know if this is a, a good thing to get into, big bettors, and even people um, who are on, you know, the wrong side of the law, uh, people who have gotten in trouble for illegal bookmaking or not paying their taxes or something like that. Um, a lot of interesting issues. Yep, it's fascinating stuff. You are you definitely have, have seen and and been involved in so many facets of the of the gambling law business um, that that it's just it's 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 incredible. Professor, I have a couple of legal questions if you don't mind that I'm sure that my list uh, sure. my listeners uh, would be interested in you addressing if that's okay with you. Absolutely, these are of course these are not legal opinion opinions they have to create an attorney-client relationship before they can rely on anything I say in your podcast. Absolutely. But I'll, I will do my best. Perfect. So in, in just in general, you know, every, and everything's around sports betting, in most U.S. states, is it legal to bet with an offshore bookmaker? Okay, so federal law requires that you be in the business of gambling. And if you're not in, in the business, meaning accepting bets or laying off bets, um, you should not fall under any federal law. The federal laws are designed to go after organized crime, not betters. Even if you make a, an old-fashioned telephone bet, with a bookie in another state, you're not violating any federal law. The bookmaker is violating the Federal Wire Act, which covers all sports betting, interstate and international, so long as you're in the business of betting. Now, the business of betting, the business of betting is bookmaking, not being not being a professional sports better. That's right. If you are only betting on your own account, you should be safe. As long as you're betting on your own account, no matter 
how big and sophisticated. If you're not helping the bookmaker, you should not fall under any federal law. Perfect. Now, which states is uh, there's you know do you know offhand which states where there are laws written where it's technically illegal to place a bet? Well, the most dangerous is probably uh, Washington State because they elevated internet gambling to a felony and they technically do cover betters. Now we're talking state law and the states can do anything they want. Um, I've talked to the regulators up there. They say they're reluctant to ever say it out loud, but no, they're not going to be arresting betters and charging them with felonies. Um, gambling, illegal gambling is almost always a misdemeanor. The Washington state made internet gambling into a felony, mainly because of political pressure, I believe, that the card clubs and Indian tribes up there didn't like the competition from internet poker in particular. Um, it also, if it's a felony, they can go after you in other states. Um, under the racketeering statutes and get help from other states. Other states don't want to bother if the charge is a misdemeanor. So Washington State is, is dangerous. Utah is dangerous because it, it outlaws everything. Um, California actually has a statute that's more than 110 years old that makes it a misdemeanor to accept, record, or make a bet on a contest or purported contest of uh, skill, speed, or power of endurance. So in other words, sports betting is illegal in California, period. They, I know of one person who was charged or going to be charged with making a bet in California because they the prosecutors made a mistake. They went in, they thought he was a big bookmaker, um, and they sat and they raided the house. They waited for the phone to ring, which is the way bookmakers, you know, used to operate, and the phone didn't ring because he was only a better. And so they said, well, we're going to charge him anyway with something, and then the case disappeared because... Um, I know of one person who was convicted in North Dakota, big sports better, and I think I've talked to him, I talked to, you know, his family, and the, the two theories on why they even found him was because he had tens of thousands of dollars going in and out of an account in North Dakota, and he was a car salesman, and his family is religious and conservative, and they didn't really like the fact that he was gambling so big. He was winning. He was really good, a good sports better. Um, so they called the feds, or the feds said forget it, and they called the state, um, or 
just because there were such large amounts of money going in and out of his bank account that the bank thought he was a drug deal. And so the state of North Dakota actually arrested this guy for making sports bets um, on the Internet. And to get rid of it, he pled guilty to a misdemeanor, paid $500, and moved to a state where he was, there was no state law against making bets. Um, fascinating. It's fascinating. The, now, the state, I just researched again to make sure I was right, and I cannot find any state law in New York that makes it a crime to be a better. And New Jersey, where I'm in. And New Jersey. There's no state statute. We know there's no federal statute about merely being a better. And there's no state statute in, like, New York and New Jersey. It's crazy, Professor, because, you know, you, we talk about the business of betting, and, and the business of betting was such a wrong term that they use for the Wire Act, because right. the business of betting is bookmaking, and so many so many attorneys and so many people just wrongfully, they think that the business of betting applies to sports bettors, and it does uh, not. No, it, 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 you know, there you can always run into uh, a judge somewhere who could even convict you, but then when it goes up on appeal, you would be uh, released. Um, but the biggest problem was it costs so much money to defend yourself. And and if they want to, they can really screw up your life. Because, uh, for example, if you are involved in a misdemeanor illegal gambling business, and you have five or more people involved in this misdemeanor gambling business, and you do more than $2,000 in business a day, you're violating a federal felony organized crime statute. And the um, it's the Illegal Gambling um, Act or, or the Organized Crime Control Act. Um, Five or more people doing two thousand dollars a day in booking, business. Booking two thousand, booking, accepting. Yeah. Yeah. You're now guilty, and it's only a misdemeanor. This statute turns a state misdemeanor into a federal felony. And if you throw in, let's say some of the bets are from out of state, now the Wire Act applies, and you. You then, if they really want to get you, they then go after you for money laundering and RICO, Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organization. And under the RICO statute, they grab everything you own and then uh, you have to prove, they've got the burden of proof, but you have to prove that everything you own was not coming out of illegal gambling funds. Yeah. I'm it's 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 the forfeiture that that's always you know that that's the the hardest part with the with the wow. federal forfeiture you know picking up a misdemeanor or anything that's the 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 hardest thing is the forfeiture and they they just use right. these things to be able to grab the money right but um okay so just want so so you know it's, 
you know, across the ac across the country in the last two years since PAPS was repealed, Professor, the term "quote unquote" sports betting legalization has <laughs> swept the nation, and so much media states that sports betting is now legal in New Jersey or sports betting is legal in New York, and uh, is using this term sports betting legalization accurate or is it misleading? It's it's misleading the same way when the feds raided some offshore bookmaking accounts. They the federal prosecutors held a press conference in New York and said internet gambling is illegal and and it's illegal off the internet and it's illegal on the internet and it's like no these are these are bookmakers who are accepting bets. Um, what what happened with PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, it was a federal statute rammed through by Bill Bradley, who was a former NBA star and became a senator from Pennsylvania, and he didn't like the fact that state lotteries were getting into the sports betting business in uh, the 19, 1990s. So he said, he rams, got this statute that says, if, you are all, if you're a state and you already have sports betting, you can continue to have it. However, if you are a state that doesn't have sports betting, that makes it a crime to be a bookmaker, you can't decriminalize. You can't legalize sports betting. And I've been saying for years, that's completely unconstitutional. Um, I worked with Senator Ray Lesniak in New Jersey, um, writing the bills to say, okay, let's get rid of, how do we, how do we challenge that? And so New Jersey legalized sports betting. The biggest opponents of sports betting are the NFL and the NCAA. And so they filed lawsuits against the state of New Jersey. And when it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, the, the U, and I, on my website, gamblingandthelaw.com, I have articles, uh, where columns I was writing saying, here is what's going to happen in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I even said it'll be a six to three vote that this federal statute, PASPA, is unconstitutional. Because what it did was it, it said that the federal government, Congress, the president, have somebody sitting in the legislatures of every single state saying, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do. And you can't. You have to, state of New Jersey, you have to keep sports betting a crime. We're going to tell you what crimes not, you... Not, not sports betting a crime, bookmaking a crime. Sorry, bookmaking a crime. Right. Because we know that betting on sports was legal. But they said to the state of New Jersey, you have to continue to make accepting bets being in the business of gambling, bookmaking, a crime. You're not a, the federal government is telling you, state of New Jersey, what you can and can't do. So the Supreme Court said, very broad decision. It's not just sports betting. It's that the 
Congress and the president can never tell a state what they can and cannot do um, in terms of like making laws. There are some exceptions, but um, the you notice the Wire Act says if you are in the business of gambling, it doesn't say the state of New Jersey must make it a crime for, for somebody who is in the business of gambling. So uh, May to 2018, the Supreme Court came down with this decision that said PASPA is unconstitutional. There is then you have to look around. What other federal prohibitions are there? And there are no federal statutes or constitutional federal statutes that would prevent a state from doing just about anything it wants intrastate. So the state lotteries can take bets uh, using the phone and Internet. States could now look around and say, hey, maybe we want to pass new laws making it legal for the legal gambling establishments in our state to go and accept sports bets from people who are physically in the state. And there was an explosion. I think we're up to 14 states now. Um, we're in an interesting situation right now where normally in an election year like this one, you don't see legislators um, offering controversial new laws like legalized um, bookmaking. But this coronavirus, um, you know, the, the, the devastation to the economy, people don't quite realize it devastates the states. The states are going to be desperate for money. The states can't just print money like the federal government. The states have to have a balanced budget. They're not allowed to have deficits. Uh, I think under Trump, the deficit has grown to $20 trillion, $21 trillion. Um, but a state can't have a deficit. They've got to figure out a way to bring in money. We're going to see sales tax go up everywhere. But the main thing they're looking for is some way to raise money in a way that won't piss people off. And legal gambling is always considered a painless tax or a voluntary tax. So even though this is an election year, we're going to see an explosion of state legalized gambling. We're going to see internet poker, uh, internet casinos, and probably the biggest growth will be in sports betting, both at places like casinos and racetracks, but given social distancing, it will probably be mostly uh, remote wagering, telephone and uh, internet. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. What, what a great analysis there. You know, just like in the Depression, um, when you, you talked about it earlier, um, 
right when when, when the economy's down, um, that's when the the lotteries came back, or, or that's when casinos well, came. Yeah, absolutely. It always the pressure in favor of legalizing gambling <laughs> is mostly economic, and it is what they would like to do. They're not going to go for daily fantasy sports so much because um, it's sports betting is where the big money is. Plus, remember, the states want to get a piece of it. So states are going to allow regulated bookmaking that they will license and tax and they will start with limiting it to the powerful political, legal gambling in the state. So notice in New Jersey, it was only the casinos in Atlantic City and some racetracks. When sports betting comes to Connecticut, it will be the two Indian casinos, uh, Foxwoods and the Mohegan Sun, because those are the two largest employers in the state. So it's not going to be that anybody can start taking bets. It will be licensed and regulated. Um, they will have to change the laws in states like California, which makes it a crime to even make a bet, even if no one's prosecuted. But California will have to say, okay, sports betting is legal, and it is not a crime to make a bet on a sports event. Gotcha. So, Professor, you know, with respect to some of these lotteries, they, they, they have interstate pools where, you know, like let's just say the yeah. Mega Millions, several states are involved. Will there ever be a time where there could be interstate sports betting or some type of an exchange model where, um, you know, several states pool each other because, you know, a lot of these states, they have the same companies in all of these states, these bookmaking companies. Could they ever uh, be able to pool everything and, and book across state lines? Will that ever happen, in your opinion? Um, I think it will happen. The problem is the Wire Act, that where PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, was unconstitutional because the it it the the Supreme Court said the federal government is telling New Jersey it has to keep something a crime. The Wire Act says that even if you are in the business of gambling, meaning your bookmaker, and even if you're a legal one you cannot send bets across state and international lines or information that would be useful in the placing of bets. So uh, now there's a chance that that might be challenged in court and declared unconstitutional. It's, it's not like PASPA. Um, there are people who are trying to figure out ways to do it, like you said, Maybe we'll pool the money, but it doesn't actually go across the state line or insure the bets. But you're sending information that's useful in the placing of bets. I think what is going to happen depends on the elections. Gambling is usually not a 
Democrat versus Republican or liberal versus conservative issue. The uh, Think of it, the three biggest casino states used to be Nevada, which is a swing state, uh, New Jersey, Democratic state, and Mississippi, which is a Republican state. So people didn't care. The problem is one person, Sheldon Adelson, who owns the Las Vegas Sands, which means the Venetian and a lot of other really big money casinos. He is the largest donor in American history, and he gives his money to Republicans. So he got um, uh, the Trump administration to um, it was um, Jeff Sessions was attorney general and even though the government was shut down, the Jeff Sessions still issued an order saying we're reinterpreting the Wire Act so that it covers all forms of Internet gambling. And meaning not only is the Wire Act bad for sports betting, it's bad for Internet poker. It's bad for everything. Um, the courts said, no, we're not going to let that happen. Um, the Department of Justice itself said, boy, that's really stupid. Um, but it is now technically the law, and it's going to become a problem next year, that um, the Wire Act has now been reinterpreted by Donald Trump and his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to mean that all Internet gambling is illegal. And um, if... The Democrats win the Senate and the presidency, then Sheldon Adelson's power is going to be greatly, greatly reduced. And the Wire Act problem of it covering all forms of Internet gambling will go away. The Wire Act itself might start to go away. Because if you think about it, if it's a legal bookmaking business in New Jersey and there's a legal bookmaking business in New York why can't they take betters from each other absolutely professor great point and it also it also incites competition which is just better overall for the consumer that's right so why should Utah care and for uh, forms of gambling where you have a liquidity problem, where you need a lot of players like Internet Poker. Right now, we've got Nevada, Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania can all pool their players. Well, why can't they take players from England, which has Internet legal Internet Poker? It There's no special uh, statute like it all comes down to, gee, does the Wire Act really apply? Um, so, and again, why why should Utah or conservative, some Republicans who don't want gambling in their state, why should they interfere with the legal gambling in other states, some of which are, are Republican states like Mississippi? 
Yeah, it's all Adelson. From what you're saying, is it's all Adelson trying to just protect <laughs> his interests. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's not a red or a blue uh, issue. It's just an Adelson issue, it seems. And, right, uh, but Adelson, yes, except the problem that Adelson is a can't tr- control the Republican Party when it comes to uh, gambling issues. Gotcha. So, Professor, you know, I think something that's very important to touch on, I know you do pro bono work for problem gambling, and, you know, a lot of my listeners, they want to, you know, the name of the podcast is called Be Better Betters, and and you always, you know, I, I try to give advice on how to become a better better, and I think, you know, given all the problem gambling that you've seen, um, yeah. you know, h- how problematic is it? And, um, you know, what advice can you give listeners, you know, to uh, to be able to control and have the discipline that it takes to excel as, as, a, as a sports better? I think it is hard because you have, and you use the right word, it's discipline. You have to, you know, you're looking for overlays, right? You're looking, it's not just that you're, going to win this bet because you're not going to necessarily win that bet but you want to when you do win you want to be paid off at better odds um there was a <clears throat> a, a professor john rosecrans uh at the university of nevada reno wrote a book on the degenerates of lake tahoe he went up and just sat there in the race and sports book and watched people and like 93% of them were losers because they couldn't stand not betting for a day or two or three and they would go with hunches. Um, I think, I don't know how you overcome that, but I would say from what I've seen of problem gamblers, the biggest problem is credit that you you shouldn't walk into a casino with credit cards or get markers. Um, you, sh- you shouldn't bet with a bookie without uh, having the money in, it, it deposited or at least, uh, and you can, if you can trust them, or uh, sitting aside. But if you do it on credit, credit doesn't, look like real money and then and then you get more credit it's not even if you think you have a gambling problem i think if you're gambling a lot and you're busy looking for sources of money that's the time you absolutely stop betting on credit you just you you're digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hole and you will require luck to get out of it and you don't want to be in that situation so, what great advice, Professor. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, <laughs> Professor. That you know, sometimes it's the bets that you pass on is the best bet you can make. That's great. That is a great way to put it. Yeah. Professor, I really appreciate the time that you've taken here to speak with me and to be able to share all your expertise with my listeners. Um, you are one of the best of the best. Uh, and, um, you know, you've helped me personally um, during my legal problems, and um, I'm forever grateful for that, and I, I hope to never uh, need your services again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but oh, I know, 
if you come up with like a skill game that you want to have on the internet, I give legal opinions. Of course. For people who are doing legal stuff. Oh yeah. Um, well, I'm, you, I was doing legal stuff too, obviously, Professor. I was just, you know, I was, yeah, you know, you, you I, remember my case. I was, I was wrongfully accused, obviously. So. That was, yeah. Your case was. It was. What happens in cases like yours is the government doesn't understand what people are doing. Yes. And so you have to explain it to them. Federal prosecutors uh, don't understand what people are doing, so that is legal. And so sometimes you just have to clarify, let them know, hey, what I'm doing is legal, and here's what it is. Yeah, my, my 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 case was out of Queens, New York, and so it was a New York State case, if you remember, Professor. And you know, th- th- I was I was I was beating bookmakers, you know, if you recall, and and I, I and bookmakers, I was beating them so much that they wind up giving me accounts to play into, and all of a sudden they thought that I was part of their illegal bookmaking business, when in fact they were part of my legal betting business. So that's uh, right. Your problem was that you were wrongfully accused. Yeah. You know, I've got another guy who um, was involved, real big better, and the bookmakers didn't want him, you know, they wanted to limit his bet because they want to limit their exposure. So he set up phony accounts, and um, the state charged him with bookmaking or aiding and abetting the bookmaker, and never bothered to uh, – I can't go into the details, but nobody ever told him, you know, the state statute says if you are just a better, if you're a player, they can't charge you with being a bookmaker or being a, uh, in the business of gambling or promoting gambling. And so they took an enormous amount of money from him as a forfeiture and he's still now got a good lawyer and they're trying to get the money back yeah it, when it comes to gambling cases especially in the criminal world um the, it's always always about the money uh, i don't think um putting yeah. uh, illegal bookmakers in prison is is really going to benefit society in any way no, and, and unfortunately, a lot of time, the prosecutors get to keep the money. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an incentive to go after um, illegal bookmakers, but even people who look like they're illegal bookmakers, and they're not. And so... It's the, uh, only, it's the only incentive. That's the, that's the driving force, you know, is the money. Um, you know, if somebody's... Know. You know, it's always... At least that's my opinion, you know. It, it, yeah, unless they, the only the other thing is if it is, if it's organized crime, yeah, or it's somebody who is thumbing their nose at the prosecutors. So when they went after uh, some of the internet bookmaking operations, it was because they were going. Onto you know television and saying hey what we're doing is legal and they can't do anything or they can't do anything about it because I'm in another country. Of course, you, yeah. 
you don't want to do that. You, you ne- n- never poke the federal government. That's the worst thing you can ever do, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So thank you again. This is this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Great, great talking with you. Stay healthy. Thank you. You too now, Professor. Man, that was so much fun. Very educational. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. He's the leading authority. You know, there's so many wannabes out there. So many attorneys think they know about gambling law. And honestly, they don't know anything. Uh, This guy wrote the book, literally. He wrote several books on gambling law. So, um, but he just knows his stuff. Um, You know, he was uh, instrumental with helping me. And, you know, I had him review my case. And um, he gladly took it on and, and wrote expert opinions and whatnot. And... He would have testified at my trial had I gone to trial. Um, so he, he's just just an all-around great guy, very humble for everything that he's accomplished. He's a plethora of information, and he knows so much. Um, even when I started my betting business, I would you know refer to him, call him, email him, and he just he just knows his stuff. He, he's you know when it comes to gambling and the law, which is his trademark, and his website gamblingandthelaw.com. There's just simply nobody better. Um, so um, and he, and he's, he's I'm 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 proud to call him a friend and um, and if anybody out there has any legal questions or anything you know you could reach him and, and, and he's very approachable and um, and just an all-around great great guy. Thanks so much for the time. Until next time.